In this episode of 92i Talks, Meryl Streep, Hugh Grant, and Simon Helberg discuss their new film, Florence Foster Jenkins, with Real Pieces moderator Annette Instor. The conversation was recorded on August 1st, 2016, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Well, <laughs> I feel like we're maybe in Carnegie Hall, but it's the 92nd Street Y, and I'm delighted to see how many of you share my appreciation for the film Florence Foster Jenkins and its three remarkable actors. I'm gonna start with a question or two for the individual people on the stage and at the end we will take a few from the audience. Um, I'll start with Meryl Streep because you were the first person cast (laughs) and I'm wondering when you first heard about the opportunity to play Florence Foster Jenkins, what it was about her that drew you the most to her character, whether it was her courage, her tenacity, her capacity for delusion, her generosity, (laughs) all of the above. Well, I'd always wanted to work with Stephen Frears, always, always. And I'd gotten close a couple times over the years, uh, but things happened and and it didn't work out. Um, So he called me and he said, I've got a film for you. And I said, yes. I didn't didn't even know what it was about. And he said, about Florence Foster Jenkins. And then, of course, I knew her, knew of her uh, from drama school because everybody passed the records around and the little cassette tapes and thought they were so hilarious. But when I really started listening, I just fell in love with the, the person behind the aspiration, you know, the, the dream, and, and that you can hear it in her voice and how she sings. No, and, and the humanity of this woman comes through very much in the way that you play her. Um, would I be right in assuming, because you are a trained singer in addition to a consummate actress, that you, in order to convey the performances that Florence gave as a singer, that first you did the songs correctly, that you sang them the way they should be, and then degraded them gradually? <laughs> yes, I eviscerated them. Um, but I did, learn, I did learn them as well as I could. I got a great, I was working on a movie about rock and roll, uh, rock and roll, I was playing Ricky and the Flash. And, <laughs> um, Oh, good, somebody saw it. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then um, Audra, my friend Audra McDonald was in it, and I said, Audra, I'm going to make this movie next, uh, and I have to do all these bel canto arias. She said, Arthur Levy, Arthur Levy, Arthur Levy. And I went to her teacher, and he taught me the arias to sing them as well as I could. And then, um, because Simon and I, we we did the music live in the film. And so we really had to know the music very, very well. And we had been promised that that wouldn't happen, that we'd, they, we'd record it first and then we'd lip sync it like in Mamma Mia, you know. <laughs> but uh, no, that didn't happen. So I'm really glad I prepared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And for Hugh Grant, and it's, it's such a delight to welcome you back. And it's been one year since your last visit to this stage. Um, could you tell us a little about how you prepared to play Sinclair Bayfield? Because um, he was Florence's partner in love and work for decades. And there are some records of him, I gather, available, but I don't know to what extent you were working from whatever you could find of the real man or to what extent it was the screenplay by Nicholas Martin. How much of this was just coming from your own sense of him? Well, uh, most of it's really the script, but I was in such a panic about this film, largely because of her, that... <laughs> I thought I'd better up my game, and I did an uncharacteristic amount of research. <laughs> and um, I came here and uh, went to Lincoln Center and read Bayfield's diaries and letters, and they were very touching, really. And because um, he, he was, um, he, he was a, a tragic character. He, he really had nothing. He had no family and uh, no career and, and uh, very little talent. <laughs> All he had was. Florence and, uh, and, they... and Kathleen. Yes, <laughs> and Kathleen after a time, yes. Uh, but that, yes, so that, that was, uh, it was, it was helpful looking at those uh, diaries and letters, but it's always difficult if we've got a real person there. You know, are you going to play the real person or are you going to play some kind of invention? And I, I was always caught between those two uh, thing, uh, directions. And for Simon Helberg, um, there was a real Cosme McMoon, and uh, fortunately, you are also a trained pianist. But could you tell us a little about, I know it's quite a stretch from the Big Bang Theory to the world of Florence Foster Jenkins, um, but in terms of your preparation. Well, I wish I knew that I had a partner in, in panic uh, in Hugh. I would have called him. We could have just sweat together. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was um, well, I mean, there was very little uh, information on these people. I just thought this, okay, this is a great name that Nicholas Martin created here, and just in the name, I could see him, and it was, he didn't create it, it was, it was real. I, I, I basically, uh, I took it from Nick Martin's script, I took it from uh, understanding what it might be to uh, be somebody born in a, a different country, uh, have English as a second language, feeling alien, being gay, probably, most likely, at a, uh, you know, at a time where it was illegal, um, and what it might feel like to be uh, kind of foreign, literally, but in, in your own body. Uh, and then, uh, for some reason, the image of a gecko always stuck in my head, too. <laughs> Of just someone li literally with their neck out and just eyes on the side of his head. Um, and I studied really hard to play the piano, and I learned about classical technique. I took sort of a crash course in, in, in that and learning this stuff, so. Because you were trained more as a jazz pianist, yeah, if I, I understand? Just, yeah, I was, I was like a, you know, like a party, uh, party trick piano player. Um, I mean, I, I was good, but I, I was not, uh, I didn't play opera. I, it was uncool enough to play jazz in high school that I thought, leave, it, leave the opera to the real, real nerds. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, uh, so this was, a, this was terrifying. Um, and S Stephen 
just believed in us. I don't know what, what's wrong with him. But, yeah. <laughs> I mean, of course he should believe in Meryl, but me, I don't know what. <laughs> well, I remember interviewing Stephen Frears for the New York Times decades ago was, uh, with my beautiful laundrette. But I'll never forget what he said to me when I asked him about the role of a director or whatever, and he said, all you have to do is great casting, and then you get out of the way of the actors. <laughs> that was his response, and I had that in my article. <laughs> and he's one of the most sort of self-effacing, self-deprecating <laughs> among contemporary directors, because even though he has made countless classic films by now, you know, for him, it's just a job, you know, he's a, he doesn't think of himself as an auteur, but a craftsman. And I'm, I'm curious about the way that he worked with you. For example, I, I'm sure that each of you has a different preference for a rehearsal period in which there's time to kind of do different things, perhaps, whether there were any imp improvisational moments. Um, in other words, if you could talk a little about what it was that Stephen did on this film with each of you that helped you truly find the character. <laughs> well, you are right. I mean, he's, he, he wasn't lying to you that he's on the minimal side of the directing, uh, or minimal end of the directing scale. But I've found, I don't know about you, that uh, some of the most well-known directors I've worked with are, are like that. Yeah. Woody Allen has never spoken a word in his life to an actor. <laughs> um, it's true. And it's a strange combination of disconcerting and uh, sort of um, empowering in a way. You think, well, uh, that's, that, as Simon said, there's an awful lot of trust you're giving me. But that, that, that is uh, Stephen. Um, I assumed he'd be the other way around with all these awards and everything. and. and uh, I, th I thought he'd be more of an auteur, and I remember going to have tea with him when he first cast me in the film, and I, I took along 10 interesting questions about the script, and I said, oh, <laughs> you know, what do you think of this moment on page 32? I, I don't know, no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, well, uh, what do you think about, uh, you know, Bayfield's relationship with Kathleen? Because that's kind of complicated. I have no idea, don't ask me, no idea. <laughs> And I thought maybe that was just what, how he is in pre-production, but no, throughout the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> and if he was sitting here on this stage yeah. now, I have no idea, don't ask me. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just a director. Yes. That's it. And, Carol, I mean, for you, first of all, I worry, that while watching the film the second time, that you can really hurt your voice doing a number of takes with that kind of repetition of pushing the voice. Was there a long rehearsal period in which that also took place? Or, and how many takes did he tend well, to do? We, Simon and I rehearsed uh, for about a week before the first yeah. reading here in New York. And the first reading was one just held in a big room and all the cast was there. And we weren't supposed to do the music. We were just going to read through. But the, the story itself is so fed by this miraculous m mistake at the center of it, you know, how she attacks, and I mean attacks, <laughs> these arias, uh, that we, we decided we'd jump up and, and do them. So, in a way, that was a great way to begin. It was a great way in to understand by inflicting this on a room of people <laughs> early on, we, we saw where the, where the ellipses were and where the, 
The tragedy was. Where the tragedy was, <laughs> where the mistakes were, where the jokes were. And it, it was just sort of fun to uh, feel the electricity. Um, but but uh, generally, the, I, I have to say I, I agree with Hugh that, that that's a sign of a great director, is the confidence in the material, the people that they've assembled. And basically, they're there for the love of it, not unlike Florence, they just love the thing that is going to surprise them. And the, the sign of a great director is one who wants what he has an anticipated scene. He wants something to uh, arrest him and, uh, and surprise him. And so we, we it's, it's, it's enjoyable. I remember Mike Nichols would always cry and laugh and cry all at the same time. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's what the actors who worked for him uh, longed for, that reaction. And, and Stephen's the same. He's, he's a very, um, this is all a big fat act, by the way. The, oh, I don't know, I'm the last to know, you know, all that bullshit. Um, <laughs> it's just not true, because he's, his eyes, he's watching very closely. And there were things that we did that didn't pass the censor, you know. Like the first day, our first day's work, which I thought was just delightful. Magnificent. <laughs> <laughs> and we came back and shot it the last day of shooting. We redid yeah. it because there was something in it that uh, he didn't really um, articulate to me. Uh, did he tell you what the problem was? No, I don't know. No, 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 but we just did it again. He said, that's it, that's it. So he's demanding, but it's to his own, it's on his own ledger. He's keeping track. And he doesn't inflict his unhappiness on us, or... Oh, sometimes he did. Well, when? <laughs> well, there were afternoons where he said, oh, this scene's so boring, let's cut it, I'm going home. Um, yes, yes, yes. And you'd but... say, well, no, it's really good, actually, Stephen. I'm being fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> then I found if you gave him a cake and a cup of tea, he was all right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's just low blood sugar level. Yes. yes. <laughs> And Simon, I know you've worked with the Coen brothers and George Clooney, but what was it about Stephen Frears and how he helped you find Cosme? Well, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not vastly different from what Hugh and Merrill said. I, I think that I, I had the same experience. I, I talked to Zeroff before I had the part, I, and he was shocked. Everything I said, he didn't know any of the stuff I was telling him. He said, well, I haven't started preparing yet. But, um, and then he kind of, I, he, I don't, I, I thought, okay, well, he's, it was very early. I just wanted the part, so I tried to show off. And he just listened and asked if I could play the piano over and over. And I don't know, he's eccentric. And then I talked to him once I got the part on the phone, and he had just listened to me talk and talk. And I, I, I was like, my gosh, when do we have the... Uh, conversation where, you know, we get deep into the process of this and it just never happened. And I, <laughs> I, I just waited for him to tell me either that I was going, that I was fired or that I was crazy, that I was bringing, you know, I, I made a lot of, I don't know, I, I guess strong choices that I was hoping he would sort of weed out and, and he didn't. So, um, but, but, but Meryl's right. It, it is, 
it, it's an act, I, I, I think, that the kind of absent-minded, um, I think he's got a laser focus, but he sort of silently, seamlessly conducts from the, the sidelines. And, and he's worked with so many actors, so many great actors. He knows how immediately the wrong word can just deflate you for weeks and the movie can be lost in, in the wrong sort of approach. And, um, and so he doesn't have one. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it seems to me that he demonstrates not unlike the last person I interviewed on this stage a few months ago when we had the preview of All the Way, we had Brian Cranston, Anthony yeah. Mackie, and Jay Roach, who is another extremely sort of self-effacing and brilliant director. And with Tom McCarthy, the same thing came up with Spotlight. If a director trusts both his material, the screenplay, and his actors, then he or she really doesn't need to push all that much. You have the confidence in the people and the material you've chosen, and you try not to get too much in the way by, you know, virtuosic uh, flourishes, if you will. Yeah. Um, one example that I, I did want to. Let him say. Yeah. Sorry. I don't know. <laughs> no. Sorry. Go, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I'm, that's very rude. I just had to ask him something, in, because what you were saying reminded me of something about Stephen, and I wondered if we were allowed to talk about it. <laughs> and I, I, think, I think we are. Okay, we yeah. are. <laughs> We're among friends. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I was, just, uh, I was just thinking when you were saying if he has confidence in the material and in the people that he's cast and in the assembled crew, and he did. He loved his crew and he had a wonderful uh, group of people, um, that he was confident, but it, I think it, it starts with the material. He's an intellectual, and he, he was drawn to this material um, and uh, believed in it, and it's like a Bible for him. The, the script is very, very, it's um, inviolate on a certain level, and, and yet when he, we came to the edit and he was troubled by how certain elements were coming together. The original script, which he believed in, had a major, we, uh, there was a major change in, from our original uh, script to the way the, the film has come out, and that is the framing of it. So you can talk about that, maybe. Because it's, it, was your, it was your, you know, scene. I wasn't in that part, so I don't care about it. A rather moving. <laughs> Rather moving and important scene yeah. starring me was butchered um, <laughs> from the start of the film. Now, it used to start uh, with um, a scene that took place a few months after Florence's death uh, based on what actually happened historically, which is that we were never officially married and therefore I, I didn't stand to inherit her money uh, except that she had written it in her will kept in that leather briefcase, which her evil cousins came and stole from her death, the side of her deathbed. And um, so we lost, I th we've lost the scene of the cousins coming. And anyway, this, the film used to begin with poor old Bayfield in court applying for some of the will and being taken to pieces by the, the Foster Jenkins lawyer who says, oh, well, you were just a gold digger, you were just a servant, uh, you know, how can you say you were married? And... Uh, 
the idea of that scene was that it was then a fascinating dilemma for the audience once the film proper starts is, was this man a gold digger or did he really love her? And um, what transpired when we cut it in was that uh, it wasn't so much a fascinating dilemma as rather a depressing one. People just thought, well, I think he probably might be a gold digger, therefore I don't like him, therefore I don't care about them, therefore I'm leaving. Um, <laughs> not, not that people actually did leave, but that's the feeling we got. So it was, it was snipped. Well, I, I have to confess, I'm hearing this for the first time, I'm really glad because for me, the key scene which comes very early in the film is when you are putting Florence to bed mm. and you tenderly remove the wig, which was like a shocking moment for me the first time I saw it. And not just that, the way that you kiss her forehead mm -hmm. before leaving the room. And that's when I realized that even though I'm aware that Stephen Frears is our great uh, director of female portraiture, if you think about films like The Queen and Philomena and Dangerous Liaisons and Mrs. Henderson Presents. So I was, I was expecting a film about Florence Foster Jenkins. And what I ended up feeling beginning with that scene was a love story. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wasn't expecting a love story, but that is exactly how the rest of the film unfolded beginning with that particular moment. Had the frame you described been there, I might not have gone there as naturally. Yeah. You know, so. Yes, I, I, I think it's important. absolutely true because what the frame of a trial, a tr putting a trial at the beginning of the, the film makes you suspect something. Yeah. And so you watch everything at arm's length and you're judging it right from the beginning. And this, this uh, unfolding of the story allows you to think you understand one thing and then you think, well, maybe I don't understand that. And, and it sort of uh, takes a more circuitous route. And oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy. In yeah. fact, I, I know of other films in the history of cinema, there have been many movies that added trial scenes, uh, notably Madame Bovary. Um, when the American version was done by Vincent Minnelli, yeah. it starred uh, Jennifer Jones as Emma Bovary. Mm. They added a scene of James Mason. It, it was a trial. It was Gustave Flaubert on trial <laughs> um, for Madame Bovary, and then the story begins. Oh, and it was gosh. just, it was this really hokey frame, yeah. and you could maybe get away with it in the 19, I don't know, 40s, yeah. 50s. But that sort of thing, I don't think we have as much patience for these days, the obvious, you know, yeah. frame. Sam Mendes told me the same thing happened on American Beauty. It was framed by a trial. Right. Opened with a trial, same thing. It was a mm -hmm. ripped it out murder in the edit. Yep, mystery. Whoa. murder mystery, isn't that? And I just showed that it. in my class, the beginning of the film, because it's so brilliant. It opens with a video image of someone <laughs> saying, "Oh, you'll kill my father." Right. And, and, and that used and, to be in court. That was how they wrote. That was like a, a piece of evidence <laughs> in that movie. And okay. So, enough with these trials. Yes. <laughs> the message. Oh, my Back to the music. <laughs> I have a question for Beryl Street because. Oh, those costumes. I mean, uh, Oscar-nominated uh, Consolata Boyce, is that, that her name? Consolata Boyle. Boyle. She, Boyle. She recreated what Florence Foster Jenkins apparently really did wear. But this leads me to ask about what I'm fairly certain were padded body suits that, I mean, you, yeah. had, some, you had layers on. Yeah, underneath I had a body. <laughs> I, had, I had, I basically became my grandmother. I just... <laughs> All of a sudden, there she was, and 
At the end of the day, I could take her off. It was a nice feeling. Wow. No, I, I just, I, and I have to add one other detail because in addition to the body that felt, even though padded, quite authentic to what I have seen of images of Florence Foster Jenkins, I was also aware of the close-ups that show the magnificent lines in your face. In other words, that, that the face <laughs> was somehow an older, beautiful face. Aww. And I was so grateful that that's what I was seeing instead of something a bit Botoxy and fake, and yep. I just felt I wanted to mention that. Um, <laughs> My face is a different story. But... Actually, a lot of work done I need here. all the help I can work. get. <clears throat> yeah, but I do have a question for Simon Helberg. In terms oh. of, because the fact that this was recorded live, yeah. um, and the fact that you were presumably, even if there were lots of CGI effects, there were a lot of people in the space when you were doing the Carnegie Hall concert yeah. as well as the initial one. Um, just what the effect is for you as the actor playing Cosme, because you're in fact playing piano in front of all these people. I just a little about that. Yeah. Um, well. Merrill had the, the great idea to, to shoot the audience first in Carnegie Hall so that we could get an authentic reaction from them so we didn't you know, turn around after we got all the, the principles and then we get a tired audience at the end of the day. So we, we basically did an off-camera concert for these 300 extras. Uh, and we were like this in the wings, and the cameras were facing that way. And we were scared. We were really scared. <laughs> and uh, there's a little thing that got cut, too. There was a little moment that we had before, right in the wings before we go out on stage in Carnegie Hall. And we sort of naturally, I guess, went into that moment, which was just, it was really, it was really scary. So, uh, you know, all the sweat and the sort of gobsmack, googly-eyed, dry heaving that I had to do in this movie came very naturally because I was always, <laughs> always, always scared. And, um, and, but also somehow magically uh, focused um, as much as I could be. Uh, I am an actor, but outside of myself. Uh, so I, 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 you know, instead of going in, I had to sort of go out just to get through the music, which is kind of a blessing to have anything to take the attention off of. I mean, there's so much here to focus on, so I, <laughs> I had a moment of being able to, I don't know, you know, when there's six cameras on your hands and then one on your cuticles and then one on your eyes and one on, and you're playing and there's really an audience and you're playing music that is unnatural to your upbringing, uh, you, it, it was kind of a blessing to actually have to get through the music so you know and everyone keeps asking oh did you guys laugh uh, how much did you, uh, laughing and and we had a great time but I don't I mean it was there's too much to get done I think in some way to be relishing in our own you know comedy but I mean you know after we cut I talked about how funny I was and how great I am and <laughs> how much I should be celebrated but during it uh, you know lot lot to focus on sure. okay I'm curious if any of you saw the French film Marguerite, which was released um, last year and which essentially tells the same basic story, except that that one is transposed to France in the 1920s. And 
there's a very different relationship, I think, between the husband, well, between the Marguerite character and her husband. Uh, had any of you seen this? I haven't. I didn't see it. No, it came as a horrible shock to learn it had been made. Uh. <laughs> but we were greenlit before that. They got the idea from us. <laughs> well, it's, it's actually, it's a very different film. I, yeah. I'm gathering that a few of you, it's, by the way, a very good film. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. different from yeah. Florence Foster Jenkins. And the, I mean, by the way, the character's name is Marguerite Dumont. And it's, it's fairly obvious yeah. that both the French director, Xavier Giannoli, and um, Stephen Frears um, were aware that the Marx Brothers had this wonderful Margaret Dumont, the character <laughs> who wanted to be an opera singer and never realized that the laughter was at her, at her expense. So in a way, that's literalized in yeah. Marguerite. But for me, the main difference is that in that film, the husband is a philanderer, doesn't necessarily, he wants to protect his wife, but you don't ever get the sense that there is a profound love, which is what you magnificently convey, both when you're in the frame with her and when you're not. Um, but I think Marguerite is a great companion piece that shows how some kind of true story can take different permutations, and that one is very much about France in the 20s, about the spirit of Dada and surrealism. Mm. And this is very much about America in 1944. I mean, even the line about the sandwiches and potato salad, there's a war on, you know. So <laughs> we, we are made aware of that. Um, I, I did have a question from Meryl Streep also, because I understand that you were trained as a singer before you came to Yale Drama School, where I first saw you back in the 1970s, yeah. um, and that you studied with Estelle Liebling between the age of 12 and 16, and if I understand correct, she, she was, by the way, she trained opera singers like Beverly Sills at the beginning of her career, and that you would travel from New Jersey to New York every Saturday yes. to study with her, and her studio wasn't far from Carnegie Hall. Right. And what I'm curious about is this, so you trained to become a singer, then you became an actor, and singing was sort of secondary. But lately, between um, Into the Woods and Ricky and the Flash, I thought you were fantastic as the ever-sexy rocker. <laughs> and now this, I mean, how do you feel about the fact that now you're returning much more to this musical performance? You know? Yeah, well, I'm, I think it's just serendipity. I'm, it just lucky that things have come along that are they're fun that have music associated with them but i did study with a i mean she was a great teacher and i was an idiot i mean i was a you know a teenager and i didn't like opera i thought it was like <laughs> boring and i uh, wanted to be a cheerleader so i quit um, <laughs> and started smoking. So, you know, <laughs> those two things kind of derailed my singing career for a while. But then I, I've, I've always loved music. But if you have children, I don't know if, you know, anybody else has this experience, but <clears throat> when they're babies, they let you sing to them, but after that, no. <laughs> you know, and I, uh, my kids were always telling me to shut up, so I didn't <laughs> sing at home. And I was happy to be able to sing in, at work, you know. Sure. <laughs> I think one of your early stage things, you did Happy... Um, happy End. Yeah, yes, the Kurt Vile. Great, 
Surabaya Johnny, no one's meaner than you. That one, yeah. That's a, yeah. Great, that's a great musical. Yeah, and how. Do any of you feel that, um, is, was Florence Foster Jenkins an absolutely unique phenomenon? Or have there been, since her time, similar situations? I'm thinking Tiny Tim, maybe. <laughs> I'm showing my age, and only some people in this audience are going to get that reference. But you know, the whole idea of somebody who sings so badly that- American Idol, American yeah. Idol. <laughs> okay. What's the one, the biggest, what is it in England? There's one of those. Yeah, shows. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, X I Factor. I think, or, yeah. yeah. People love to see failure as much as they love to see success or, or, or the, and people also love the, to see someone who's really trying and almost makes it and just isn't good enough. You know, because you feel like you can sit in judgment. We sit in judgment of each other endlessly. Anyway, but <laughs> so that gets ratings. But I think, I think uh, for me, the pull of this, the whole pull of the, the story was that, that idea that this couple were in love with the idea of art, and they wanted to serve it in some way. And there are audiences throughout New York that are made up of people who did things in high school, you know, on stage, and always <laughs> wished that maybe it could have gone somewhere. But they bring that to the theater, and they give it to us on stage, and without the love of, of the amateur, we'd be nowhere, you know? It's a, that come as performers. Anyway. Well, actually, you just used a key word, for, in my opinion, amateur. I mean, it, the root word is amart to love. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, you're innocent at it, you're maybe ignorant, but you love it. Mm -hmm. And what comes through in this film, of course, is the passion. The passion, first of all, of Florence. Second of all, of St. Clair, I mean, who is clearly so protective and nurturing of that passion, and I don't think it's just for selfish reasons, the way you play him. And then Cosme, too, you know, who is obviously talented, but scared that his future reputation will be completely scarred, and then finally goes along for the ride. And, and towards the end, you realize... And he composes. And he composes. <laughs> so there. Yeah. Now, I have a lot more questions, but I know that some of you do, too. So we are going to raise the lights a little, and if you raise your hand high, I, I see one right there already in the dark. Um, if you could raise the house lights so that we can see, aha, oh, there are so many of you, it is lovely to look at. We have time for just a few, but I'm gonna try to repeat them as clearly as I can. Yes, go, go right ahead. And a lot of glass ceilings have been broken of late. Right. <laughs> and I wanted to applaud both of your, your roles in both of them. And I want to applaud your roles in both of them. <laughs> Excellent. I also wanted to somehow get you a deck of these Hillary playing cards. Throw them up here, babe. A deck of, <laughs> Throw them up a deck of Hillary playing cards. <laughs> Almost got it. Almost got it. Just if you feel that preparing in a not so great voice as much as 
your true better voice, you know, there's a lot of difference. Is there a big difference in preparing to sing with a great voice and in a not so great voice? Like, what's the, the difference? Well, I, one of the, our earliest screenings was hosted by an idol of mine, Renee Fleming. And she, she came back afterwards and said, did you have to sing that more than once a day? <laughs> she said, we don't sing that more than twice a week, you know, the queen of the night aria. And so, <laughs> yeah, I said, I, I sang it eight times one day, and then I came back and sang it eight times the next day. <laughs> and I sounded like you at the end of the day. <laughs> I lost it. I really lost it. Um, and there was a lot of panic in the insurance company that <laughs> about this, whether we could keep going. But um, no, the preparation is the same. It's, it's breath, stamina, and, you know, keeping the channel open as... Uh, who said? Uh, that was uh, Agnes DeMille. Mar no, Martha Graham. Martha Graham said to Agnes. <laughs> yes, Agnes. <laughs> Keep the channel open, yeah. But also, you know, when, when you raise this question, I can't help but remember that in, it's true. Florence Foster Jenkins was treated for syphilis for decades with a combination of mercury and arsenic. We're talking lethal here. That she could still even, you know, move, much less sing at the age of 76 yeah. is extraordinary. Formidable will. Yeah. yeah. You have to have, I'm not even going to think about what you have to have to be able to do that. Uh, yes, go ahead. Hi, thank you so much for a movie about love, romance, and hope. Thank you for a movie about love, romance, and hope. Um, so I have two questions. Um, since Stephen Frears is so free with his... The question is about, given that Stephen Freer has had a relative freedom in terms of working and finding characters, how much time was there actually involved in, in do you mean in rehearsal or in the shooting? And, and between the actors, did they choose to go on Yeah, how you prepared scenes, how long you had to do that. Mm. <laughs> to be honest, I, I don't think we did that much. No. I've learned more doing these interviews about what, um, <laughs> what these guys were really thinking of the characters in the film. And I'd quite like to go back and shoot it all again. <laughs> it's very interesting insights. <laughs> but be, basically you had the one week, more or less, of a rehearsal? Yeah, just, that was music. But that was just, music. Just that was never, music. We never rehearsed of any of nine, nine songs we had to right. learn. We never rehearsed and the acting. On the average, how many takes for shot? Oh. Well, it depended on who it was. Some of us like to go again <laughs> and again. I don't think that's really fair. <laughs> But we, no, it, I, it depends on the moment, you know, it really does. It it and, and it depended on Stephen's mood. Right. You weren't there the day he made poor John Sessions do 47 takes of the same no. scene. Yeah, yeah that, well. 
Well, he's, he's very kind to the above the line. <laughs> <laughs> it could be very fast, There's, though. A few there takes sometimes. Sorry, two right here, one woman, and then right behind you. Question for Meryl Streep. <laughs> Given how many awards, nominations, uh, prizes she's received, does she ever feel like showing up and just like Some doing would half say a job? I have done that. <laughs> uh, but you know, I mean, we, you know, if you if you're doing the thing you love, what can you do? You you be, become a little relentless about it. What can I say? We all are a little bit relentless on a certain level to try to get it right. You know, <laughs> because you only get one shot, and we're so lucky. So many actors don't get a, a shot at all, and to have the chances that we've all had is is uh, it's a great privilege. And that's what I think. I'm not sure. I think there are two hands over there. The second row person. Wait, actually, oh, there are two of you. I'm sorry. Um, no, he has two heads. <laughs> <laughs> we can hardly see here, but go ahead. My question is for Ms. Street, Oh, yes, I did. This is about what input she had with the costumes. Had lots of input on the costumes. We all did, didn't we? On yours, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> More Zoftig, I think. <laughs> I said, get out of here, Simon. Generally, you know, Con uh, Consolata would, would uh, we decided on the silhouette, which was, it's particularly lovely, that, that 30s um, drape. Even though this was 1944, lots of women stop at the moment, they stopped their sort of sartorial choice at the moment where they thought they were prettiest and youngest. And so she, I think, we, Consolata and I decided stop, started, stopped in the early 30s with that. Everything cut on the bias. It moves when you walk. It's cut about here. The shoes are delicate. And they're not like the, those 40s clothes, which are very clunky, wartime, square, military kind of effect. Um, a little masculine. She's very rounded. Everything was rounded. And we had a great big vat of crap jewelry. And every day, every day, I'd put on the sort of base thing, which was frilly and full of furbelows and all sorts of trims and, you know, peplums and fr fringe and everything. And then I would put the jewelry on. And it, I was never satisfied with one or two necklaces. We just kept putting them on. And the more, more is more. Yeah. <laughs> I loved the clothes in this. I just did. Oh, and yeah. The hats. And now the person in the middle, yes. It's great to see New York in uh, that time period. I'm wondering if it was the exteriors Ah, the question it was great to see New York in that time period where the exteriors really shot in New York. Mm -mm. Liverpool, babe. <laughs> it's true. There's one particular corner in Liverpool down by the docks. And uh, that they're big granite buildings that look like... Financial. 
Yeah, the financial. It's the same architect, I think, is what I is heard, as, yeah, yeah. as here. So they took us. And you see that corner. It's like you see that Warner Brothers <laughs> town square in every movie. Um, you, you see that, that uh, New York in many movies. And then green screen, that whole then the green screen the, shot up. The Mercy out, the Mercy River. Right. <laughs> and the Empire State Building was Goes up. green. Right. And even Carnegie Hall was recreated in London. If that I was know. the Hammersmith Ballroom, not Hammersmith. Apollo. Apollo. Right. It's in Hammersmith. Yeah, it's now Apollo. called the Apollo. It was the Odeon. Yeah. It's where I used to watch Meryl Streep films as a boy. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And it, and it has, and they made it look exactly like Carnegie Hall, except to the first tier. Right. And then the second, the all, everything above it. But the, the rest of it was, you know, full of people. They were real people. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm, I'm sorry that I can't see very well from here, so if you're further back than the beginning, you'll have... Oh, the balcony. I can't see you at all. I'll come right back to you, but whoever just yelled from the... Ah, now we can see a bit better. Balcony, go for it. What can each of you credit as the moment earlier, earlier in, in your career that had the greatest risk? The biggest risk you took. The biggest risk you took. Snowballed you into your career. That snowballed you into your career. Unprotected sex, I think. <laughs> but it worked, you know. Well, I'm not, not sure any of you that want to follow. That is the opposite of my answer. <laughs> <laughs> no sex <laughs> leads to a very determined actor. <laughs> Popularity was the aphrodisiac I craved and hoped for. <laughs> I'm going to answer earnestly because I'm like so earnest. <laughs> but I went and got amassed a lot of student debt <laughs> at drama school because my father said, I'll pay for medical school, but I sure as hell won't pay for <laughs> you to go prancing around in front of people. <laughs> so I went and I, you know, did work study and got student loans and typed and waited on tables, and I cleaned the Deke fraternity bathroom <laughs> at Yale University <laughs> myself with a toothbrush. It was with, in between the tiles. It was unspeakable. <laughs> but um, yeah, that was a risk, I think. <laughs> But then I could pay them back because in those days it was sort of affordable, you know. Yeah. It was, I think the tuition was $3,000. Yeah. 
And it's not that anymore. <laughs> oh. Okay, down here. Um, Ms. Streep, so with your vast and obvious, you know, career, variety of roles, and everything you do just keeps getting better and better and better and better. So my question to you is, do you have a favorite role that you have played in your multitude of roles in your wonderful career? The question for Meryl Streep, given that among the variety of roles, she just seems to be getting better and better. Does she have a favorite among the roles that she has played? I don't. I really don't. I mean, to me, I watch uh, when I I watch the movies when I come upon them inadvertently on TV, and usually they're the ones that I'm I don't really love. But I look at them completely differently because I think about where we were shooting, how old my children were at the time where we were living. I, I watch the movies with completely different, do you know what I mean? It brings back a whole life experience. So it's like, yeah, there were parts of my life that I were more favorite than others, but I guess. I can't think about the movies that way. I don't, I don't do it that way. <laughs> okay, um, I see in the middle, there's a gentleman and a woman next to you. Go right ahead. So what? Go for it, right? The point being finding your passion, and the gentleman acknowledges his love for music, but he's not very good at it. Is there a question? <laughs> it was a confession. I love that. It's a confession. Okay. A, a confession. It's adorable. Finding your passion, I guess that is the answer. And then there's the woman right there. Yeah. Wow. We saw Alice starring Meryl Streep at the public theater. It had, yeah. This led us to assume that you would have a career in musical theater. Is there any project that would bring you to Broadway or off Broadway? And you're spe specifying musical theater? Anything. Anything. <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh. I would, yeah, I would love to do um, something in the theater again. And I didn't do it for many years because, weirdly, movie, the movie life is much friendlier to raising kids and teenagers because you're home at night. <laughs> and that's when they don't want you to be home. <laughs> so the theater is a really, you know, that was just not going to happen. For me, and now, now, I've just, you know, the, the, the last part of my career has been inexplicable to me because it should have been over, really, 
from all the um, exemplars that came before me, they, they were, people were, were pushed out, really pushed out at 45 or something. And now I'm 67 and I'm getting all these movie roles, so I keep doing them. <laughs> I'm getting applause for being 67. For acknowledging it. <laughs> But Hugh, Hugh will be there in <laughs> 10 years or so. But you, uh, a you little know. more than that, yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so I haven't, I haven't, I have to, you know, what is it? Strike while the iron is hot. As these wonderful projects come, I do them. And, um, but yeah, I would love to do the theater. Well, I think I last saw you on stage. It was my birthday gift. In July was 2002 when you were doing The Seagull. Oh, yeah. Um, Shakespeare in the Park, directed by Mike Nichols. Yep. And you co starred with Kevin Klein, Christopher Walken, Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah. Natalie Portman. I mean, it was one of the great. I slept spaces. on the street in New York to see that production. It's true, he did. I really did. And I asked Meryl for a refund when I saw it. Just. <laughs> I didn't think I'd ever get to ask. It was very, it was very hot. It was and very hot. I felt hot. just for the dry cleaning. I, the play was great, but I needed something to cover that. But um, yeah, who would have thought? Full um, circle. Now, um, I know there are more questions, but um, these people here have a few more commitments in the next week before Paramount releases the film on August 12th. I just want to say, in addition to being very grateful to all three of you, Hugh Grant, Simon Helberg and Meryl Streep. I just want to add one tiny detail, because last week, I mean, I would be a bad citizen if I didn't acknowledge the world we're living in that is not Florence Foster Jenkins. Meryl Streep, when I saw you at the Democratic Convention. <laughs> Clearly, I, I was not alone. Um, Speaking and, of a story about and, a delusional person with no skill set, <laughs> somehow triumphs against all odds. No, and, and yeah. when you talked about Hillary Clinton in terms of her grit and her grace, when you talked about her fullness of heart, it was obvious to me and everybody else who was watching, it takes one to know one. Oh. Thank you for all that you've done. And thank you for the film, too. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Recanati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.